kind of moving slowly through these first couple of chapters. Uh, after we get past this section, we'll move it for a while at a chapter a week clip. Uh, so we'll start to move a little more quickly. But we're in the uh, in the midst of, of dealing with uh, Christ's letters to the to the seven churches. You'll remember that we said those seven churches are are representative, seven being the number of perfection, uh, symbolizing the the whole church. And yet they were actual historical churches that actually existed that had had the problems uh, listed here. We're this week on the church in Thyatira. Uh, we're going to begin at Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, and I will just read that section uh, to you. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, and your service, and patient endurance. That you, in that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I've gone, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into the great tribulation, unless they repent of her, of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. And I will give each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to, to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, we live in a, a, a culture. Uh, uh, we live in, in, in a time where the idea or the concept or even speaking of anything like judgment is viewed as, uh, as a negative. In fact, uh, in our society, there may literally be nothing wrong uh, except for displaying what our culture would call judgment to to various groups of to groups of people and that's uh, of course um uh conditionally applied not not applied ac across the board because there are at any given time in any culture groups of people that it's okay to judge but by and large if you 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 asked what our our cultural ethos is or our our, our grand cultural belief at the at the heart of it we live in a time that says you shouldn't judge don't judge um in in urban uh urban communities and, and elsewhere uh you might see regularly uh the t-shirt i've seen it in tattoos and i've seen it on the back of cars you might see the the, the saying only god can judge me right uh i've always thought that particularly humorous uh, when people say only God can judge me because they, 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 they seem to have missed out on one of the key teachings of, of Scripture, which is you're right and he will. They, they miss out on, on that idea. In fact, it's a, it's a very dangerous thing, I think, to walk around proclaiming loudly that only God can judge you and at the same time forget that the point of Scripture largely is that he will 
and he's going to. And so we, we have a tendency in, in our culture, we'll follow that up in a minute, but we have a tendency in, in our culture to view God from the, from the perspective of, of our American uh, dream-based uh, um, industrial nation achievement based system we have created or recreated God in, in our own image. So we tend to have a view uh, of, of God that, that is limited uh, or if we uh, to say it this way, if you watched a cartoon where, where they talked about God he is probably a, a, a little old man sitting on a, on a, on a cloud Alternatively, there are some people who would acknowledge that, that judgment is a key component of who God is, but the way in which they, they apply that would, would be silly. But Jesus, specifically, who's speaking here in this passage of himself, is not viewed uh, by most in our culture as, as a judge or as a righteous judge. So anytime anything happens in, in our culture, anything awful happens in our culture, anything that we as uh, as Christians might feel is is sinful in our culture, if a Christian speaks out on on that thing, and by the way, I'm not. Let, let me just as a parenthesis, we're going to talk about these things. Nothing I say, nothing I will say, ever excuses jerk behavior from people who claim to follow Jesus. That's wrong. It's sinful. Not what I'm talking about. But to to continue here, so anything happens in our culture, a Christian speaks out to the thing that happens in our culture, and what you'll hear a lot of times, well, that doesn't seem very much like Jesus. I thought you people follow Jesus. Why can't you be like Jesus? And so you'll remember that I began this series saying that my hope was that you would encounter a vision of Jesus that was whole, a vision of Jesus that was complete, a vision of uh, of Jesus that included the the whole Bible right? And so it's always funny that anything happens in our culture, a Christian speaks out, and we get lectures from people who do not follow Jesus about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And so their idea or their conception of Jesus is extremely, extremely limited and almost completely culturally constructed. But the idea is, is that Jesus was a warm and fuzzy guy who walked around in, in, in robes, uh, uh, long clothing in, in the Middle East, and, and said uh, fancy sayings or kind sayings uh, to people. And so the, the view of, of, of Jesus is as though he were a... Um, as though he were maybe what we might call a hippie sage, right? He's super laid back. He's hippie. He says sorts of things. He has he has sayings, and so uh, in that sense, I think that the the Jesus of popular culture uh, has more in common with a character from a Cheech and Chong movie, and I can't remember which one is Cheech and which one is Chong, but one of them has the long hair. That dude, I tend to think that in our culture that the view of Jesus that we have is more like that long-haired hippie dude who smokes lots of weed, so he's real laid back and likes everything, and he's like, man, dude. And so we have this vision, this idea of a, of a Jesus who would never, ever, ever dream of judging or confronting the things that you do. He is there to, 
to, to cuddle you. He's there to cuddle you. He's there to keep you. And he does all with a wise saying. And so we tend to have in our, in our culture cuddly Jesus, and we want to be cuddled by him. The great thing about cuddly Jesus is he wants all the same things we want. His desire is to give us what we want, and he'll never, ever, ever confront us. The problem with that is, is that that model of Jesus is completely unbiblical. And because it's completely un, uh, unbiblical, it's not helpful it's not uh, life-changing. It's not life-transforming. It doesn't do anything for us. It's a bad view, and, it, and it's a bad God, and that God is not, not Jesus. And so you need to understand that we're going to go into a portion of Revelation which talks a lot about Jesus as righteous judge, and that this is, is a component of who he is. And ultimately viewed right, it is an excellent component of who he is. This is who you want him to be. This is who you need him to be. And even then, frankly, guys, if this book is true, it really doesn't matter how much you like that vision of the Jesus you read about. Either he's God and this book is true or he's not and you're wasting your time here this morning. But there's not really sort of a middle ground where you're like, I don't like that Jesus in Revelation. I'm going to go with like the Jesus in John 3.16 alone right? And so the, the reality is, is that the, the scripture is presenting a vision of Jesus. It's telling us who Jesus is, and the decision for us is, do we want to follow that Jesus, or do we want to continue to make up our, our own Jesus? Which is actually, interestingly enough, the point of this passage as well. So let's, let's dive in, and um, hopefully you'll look less offended by the time I finish. So, uh, and to the angel at the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So we talked about this a couple weeks back when we used similar imagery, but I don't know about you, but eyes of fire, right? You should have seen enough cartoons, enough comic books, enough something on TV to know that the dude with the eyes of fire is not the cuddly bunny guy, right? This is not the beginning. When Jesus launches into this, he is not trying to... to, to communicate to you his cuddliness, right? This is not the beginning of the story of Teddy Ruxpin. Really old reference, sorry. This is not the beginning of, of, of the story of, of, of what they tell on your way into Build-A-Bear, where you construct your own bear. This is not Build-A-Jesus, right? He's not cuddly, because that would begin. And this is the words to the angel of the church, right? The words of the Son of God, the cuddly bunny, the one who wants to, wants to cuddle with you. It doesn't say that. His eyes are a fire. Why are his eyes a fire? We talked about this. His eyes are a fire because he sees everything. He sees all that it is. He sees all that will be. He sees all that has been done. He sees all that will be done. He sees your acts. He sees the acts of all things throughout all time that will happen. And his eyes are as fire because he, being God, being the righteous standard, understands that what is happening in the world, what has appeared in the world, what is going on in the world is different from that which he would, would uh, th that which would be called his sovereign will. In other words, the way the world functions because of sin is different from the character of God and the way the world was designed to function at creation was within line with the character of God. And so Jesus looks at the world as it is and he sees it with eyes of fire. In other words, he sees it like a righteous judge. He sees what's going on and he is going to deal with it. He has eyes of brass to, to symbolize or, or, or feet of burnished bronze to symbolize his strength, to 
signify his unmovableness, to symbolize his unchangeableness. But in any case you look at it, these words are chosen to give you a picture, a historical picture of Jesus. We pointed out uh, before that Revelation's the only book of the Bible that describes Jesus' characteristics in this way, right? They describe how he looks, and yes, it's figurative, but it is telling that the only time the Scripture decides to describe how, how Jesus looks, his eyes are as fire, his, his feet are as burned as bronze, he sees what is going on, his ways are immovable, his ways are true, his ways are right, and he's going to deal with it. He wants them to know up front, right? This is not Jesus the cuddly bunny, this is Jesus the righteous judge. And so then the righteous judge is about to speak. He says, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. We talked about this a couple weeks back. The key works that are being talked about is the righteous mission. They were, were to be Jesus followers who told other people about the Jesus that they followed. And their works have, 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 have exceeded the last. They continue to do that, even though they live in, in, in a society where persecution was a reality, where, where being... Um, being attacked or, or being discriminated against for their faith was a reality. Their works exceeded their, their last. They continue to share Christ even in the face of, of great danger. It says, I know that your uh, works have exceeded the last, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Jezebel is an Old Testament reference uh, to a new one, uh, to something happening in the New Testament. Jezebel, when used in Scripture, means an evil woman who would lead people astray, usually, uh, usually a woman of, of ill repute. Um, he, he's basically... Uh, uh, a Jezebel, even in, in our own time, is usually a code word for, for a loose woman, a woman who be behaves inappropriately uh, sexually. That's the usage here, uh, to be careful with it. But I have this against you, tolerate uh, that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, sexual immorality, the word there in the original language is the word pornea. You might recognize it from whence we get our word in English, pornography. The, the reference here probably, though, is, is not to the fact that they're actually um, acting out sexually. Uh, the sin here is probably uh, inclusive of sexuality, but rather what, what Jesus is saying to them here is that I am your faithful husband, I am Jesus, and you're following that woman Jezebel, and you're worshiping other gods, and you're prostituting yourself with those other gods. In other words, what he's accusing them of, he's accusing the, these, these, these Jesus, uh, these people who are supposed to be Jesus followers of not following Jesus. He's accusing them of going to other gods. He's accusing them of being an unfaithful wife. He's accusing them uh, uh, of, of every sort of um, awful thing you can think of for a wife to be accused of. In other words, you're unfaithful. You practice sexual immorality. Uh, sexual immorality... In, in actuality, might have been a problem, a, a part of the sin, but what he's actually saying here is, you're choosing to worship other gods. I am the, I am the, uh, I am the bridegroom. You are my church, meant to be my, my bride, and you're going out and you're sleeping around with all kinds of other, other gods. This is a common analogy uh, all throughout Scripture. You remember in the book of Hosea, 
Hosea's uh, wife, Hosea takes a wife, his wife runs out and commits numerous affairs on him. God tells Hosea, go and get your, your wife, bring her home and treat her as if, as if she had done no, no wrong against you. Marry her, keep her. And, and Hosea is told to bring his wife who had run out to become a prostitute home and, and to stay faithful to her. The reason why is because Hosea was repre- or, or Gomer, his wife, was representative of the people of Israel who though God was their, was their good and faithful husband, they ran out and prostituted or whored themselves with, with false gods. And he told them, go out, get Gomer, bring her home and be faithful to her because, and then tell the children of Israel that they're just like Gomer. Right, And so the same sort of thing, it's the same sort of analogy. What, what's being said here, Jesus is saying is, I'm, I'm the faithful husband. I'm the, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the one who is always faithful to you. I'm the one who sustains you. I'm the one who loves you. And you're following a prophetess. You're following a woman who encourages you to go whore yourself with other gods, to worship things that are not me. You're an unfaithful wife. That's, that's what's going on there. And so... We, we encounter the word sexual immorality uh, in some of, the, some of the churches that was, that was literally the problem because they had, they had temples where they would go and engage in literal uh, sexual morality. In this case, probably what he's saying is you're whoring yourselves with gods who are not me. You're an unfaithful, you're an unfaithful wife. So he tells them, uh, get rid of that prophetess. Uh, he says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I, well, well, we'll come back to that. So she refuses to repent. She's been given time to repent. What's probably going on is Thyatira is, is um, a culture that has all kinds of trade guilds. The trade guilds were how people got involved in, in, um, in the business of the day. It's how they got involved in the economy of the day. It's how they, they obtained success in the day and in that time. And so what's happening is Jezebel, this Jezebel comes and starts to teach in the church and she's starting to teach the church that it is okay for them to be involved with the, the trade guilds. The problem with the trade guilds is that the trade guilds often had as a, as a, um, as a condition for membership that you had to worship the false gods that they, that they worship. So all the trade guilds would have various gods over them. And if you wanted to be involved in the economy, you had to go and do, c- commit the acts that you didn't have to necessarily uh, believe, but you had to go through the acts of giving an offering to the false god. You had to go through the acts of doing ceremonies to the false god. And so this Jezebel comes along and goes, listen, guys, if you don't really believe in those things, it's okay to just go through the motions of worshiping that false god so that you can participate in the economy. Right? And so essentially what the Jezebel, this Jezebel did is she came along and said, said, it's okay to participate and compromise with the worldly and wrong things of this time. It's okay to do those things as long as you, know, as long as you don't put too much into it because God wants you to be successful. And so God wants you to be involved with these, these trade guilds. And so this Jezebel, this woman, is encouraging them to perform, uh, perform various acts uh, of, of reverence to these false gods so that they can participate in the economy based upon her belief that God would want them to be successful, that God would want them to be, uh, to be, um, to be rich, to make money, to be, to be involved. So with, with, with due respect to bluntness, this is essentially as if, again, using the bride and the groom model, as if someone came to a husband and said to the husband, it is okay for you to make out with that girl over there, even though you're married, 
as long as you don't mean it in your heart, right? So we call making out with a girl that you're not committed to NICMO, right? Non-committal making out. Uh, so what is, is going on, it, can you imagine if your husband came home and said, I got to tell you something, I, I made out with a girl, but it was NICMO, no big deal. Didn't mean anything. I just went through the acts. And the reason I did it is because I knew that if I made out with that girl, imagine perhaps that the girl's his, his boss, I knew if I made out with that girl, she said she would give me a promotion. And so I made out with her, and she gave me a promotion. And don't worry, it didn't mean anything, but I got a promotion, and so now our family makes way more money. Isn't that better for our family? Isn't it better for our family that I made out with her because we got more? Don't worry. I didn't mean it in my heart. Any wife in her sane mind, right? Any right-thinking wife, husband, any wife that loves you more than she loves money is going to, to respond to that in a way that is not verb verbally publishable in a sermon, right? Uh, she's going to say things and she's going to do things like, you come home and say that, step one, duck, step two, run, Okay? Because she's going to say things and she's going to do things that make clear that this is not acceptable. You may not, no matter how uncommitted your heart is to it, you may not compromise even the acts or the ceremony of your marriage. In other words, your lips, if you are married, belong to your wife. Your lips belong to your husband. And it does not matter if you claim that it was just a purely physical act. This is a completely foreign to scripture argument. Right? And so that's kind of what, what's happening. This Jezebel says to him, you can go ahead and do, do those sacrifices in the temple to join the trade guild. It's okay. God knows you didn't really mean it. So they're being seduced by compromise. And the, the result of that is anytime you compromise, what you essentially do is you start to create your own idols or you create your own gods. And what you end up with is a God that looks astonishingly like you. He may not look physically like you, but the wants and the desires of the, of the God that you follow are identical to and just like the desires that you have. And it is a dangerous thing, by the way, to have a God that always agrees with you. A God who always agrees with you is not God. He is an idol, right? Because you have created a God in your own image. God is holy. God is righteous. God is good. You are in your flesh. None of those things. And so a God who agrees with you all the time is not a God who is worthy of following, for one. It's not a God who can save you, but it is a God, frankly, that most of us choose to worship because the most common idol in all of our lives is the one who looks at us in the mirror in the morning. We wake up, what, if you want to know what most of, our, most of the time our God is, it is the one who stares back at us from the mirror, which is interesting because you would think as you roll to the mirror first thing in the morning, it would be clear that you're not really all that worthy of worshiping, right? Now, I don't wake up with messy hair, but some of you more gifted in that department do. You wake up with your wild hair and your morning breath, and all the problems that you have in the morning, and yet you are able to convince yourself, stink breath and all, that you are worthy of worship every morning. And we do it again and again and again. That's what's happening here because if you compromise, you get what you want. And so essentially, the argument from this Jezebel is God wants you to be successful. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be to 
to be involved in the trade societies. And so they did it. I think that this is a message for our own time. I think this is something that we need to hear as well. We have all kinds of churches practicing all kinds of religion that essentially argues at the heart of it that what God really desires, what God really wants, what God really cares about it is shockingly exactly what we really want, what we really care about. So God wants you to be rich, and if you just had enough faith, you'd be rich. God wants you to be successful, and if you just had enough faith, you'd be successful. God wants you to, 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 to reap what you've sown, and if you just sow enough, then you're going to reap a harvest, and it'll be like that. And, and God doesn't want for any of his children to be poor, and God doesn't want for any of his children to be, be in struggle. Frankly, those Jezebels can be found on TV this morning. Go turn on your TV. Wander around this, we'll do a, do a tour. I'll show you churches in this city preaching that exact same message. Send enough money to me, then God is going to send enough money to you because what God wants and what God cares about and what God is really emotional about is your success. Guys, that ain't God, that's you. And that's a lie, and it's not scripture. And, and the reason I want to be so clear that that's a lie is because that's a lie that is spreading from American churches into, the th into third world countries. Do you know... Um, and we'll just straight up call this dude out because he's a pagan who doesn't follow Jesus. There's a dude named Benny Hinn, right? Do you know that Benny Hinn travels to nations across the world and charges them $80, somewhere between $50 and $80 to get into his crusade so he can heal them? In the countries where he shows up and does that, in some of those places, that's over a year's wage. But Benny Hinn's so into following Jesus and Jesus wants Benny to be so rich that all of these people who have no money and are desperately looking to be healed come and they give Benny Hinn their money. And they go to it and they're drawn in by, by the pageantry. They're drawn into, in by it and they start to follow. So all over the third world you have people converting not to following Jesus but converting to this Jesus, this Jezebel Jesus who wants them to be rich. And for almost none of them is it working. You know who the faith and uh, the health and wealth gospel works for? The prosperity gospel works for? Prosperity preachers. It don't work for anybody else. You got rich people who are already rich following it, and you got prosperity preachers. There's a reason all the prosperity preachers have $80 million. They stole it because they're Jezebels. That's a whore faith. That, that's, that's, that's despicable, and it's disgusting. That's what Jezebel is preaching. That's what our society preaches all over. And so you have people going, just give enough. God wants you to be rich. Just believe enough. God wants you to be rich. If you do one good work, and then that good work will come back to you, and the good works will bloom into a giant cornucopia of good workiness, and you'll be happy, you'll be wealthy, you'll be rich, your kids will be perfect, and you'll drive a Lamborghini. And aren't we all happy about that? The problem is, is that there is exactly zero gospel in that. There's zero Jesus in it, and the word says, right here that he's going to judge the people who teach it. They will be dealt with. So the people wandering around the African continent, distorting the good news of Jesus Christ, getting people to worship themselves over the person of Jesus, those people will be judged, right? I ain't afraid to say Benny Hinn's name because he's going to be judged. And there's all kinds of other Jezebels on TV who are going to be judged because that is a lie. It is false religion. That is false faith. It's not true. It's not good. It's not right. It's manipulative. It's distorting. It's disgusting. There's all kinds of people in Africa who are starving, who gave up a year's wages to go see a charlatan and a liar. And frankly, that is why sometimes I'm very glad that Jesus is a righteous judge because he's going to deal with those fools. Here's the bad news, though. Even outside of prosperity, churches, we preach prosperity light, right? Don't we? Right? 
just love Jesus enough, follow Jesus enough. He might not want you to be a millionaire, but doesn't he want you to have a white picket fence? Follow Jesus hard enough, right? Pray enough, go to church, maybe hit up that missional community once or twice, then God's going to take care of you, right? You're going to get, you might not be rich, but you're going to make all your bills. You might not be rich, but you ain't going to struggle. You might not be rich, but you're not going to be hungry, right? It's prosperity light. See, prosperity teaching, whether it's a lot or just slightly more than you had before, is still prosperity teaching. So if your, if your religion, the end result is that if you do A, then God's going to give you B, and B is anything other than, than, than himself. See, you're practicing Jezebel religion. That's false religion. It's a false god. And, and I don't want to be mean, and I don't want to attack, but you've got to understand that I don't see any promise of a white picket fence in the scripture. I definitely don't see the Lamborghini, but I don't see the white picket fence either. I don't see the, see the steak, but I don't know some days if I see the bread either. Gonna be, the reality is, I, I read Hebrews, it says they, they were... They were drawn and quartered. It says they were stabbed to death. It says they were killed. It said they had nothing to eat. And then it said, and this world was not worthy of them. That's in the list of the heroes of the faith. Did they not have enough faith? Did they not care enough? Did they not follow Jesus enough? Right? I just don't see that promise. And the reason I bring this up is because I think if you buy into white picket fence-ism, if you buy into middle-class-ism, right? It's not prosperity gospel, middle-class gospel. My worry is, is that you will adopt the middle-class gospel as your God, and you'll never receive the actual gift that, that Scripture has, and it's better. Right? So we'll get to that in a minute, but I'm just saying that this is a problem for all of us. Beware God's made in our own image. Beware, beware success talk whether it's a Lamborghini or just a slightly nicer house. Beware those things that you, you told yourself in your heart that God really wants you to have. Which is not to say that God is not good and that God does not sometimes bless. But God blesses according to the, to the, to the, the goodness of his own will, to the, to the sovereignty of his own counsel, because he wants to, not because you compelled him. And, and so for one person, God's blessing might be a lot of money. And for another person, God's blessing might be brutal death on a small island in Ecuador. And each person is equally blessed. As Jim Elliott speaking on this, one of those people who died on the island in Ecuador said, he is no fool if he should choose to give up that which he can never keep to gain that which he can never lose. Jim Elliott died with five other missionaries on a small island in the middle of a river in Ecuador killed by people they're trying to tell about Jesus. And he died just as rich as every other person in Christ who dies. So in the church, he, Jesus says this, verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. No, she's like, no, I, I like my, my version of the gospel. It's better. I'm going to stick with it. He says, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into the great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Here's the thing. If you understand, we have a tendency when we talk about these things to go, well, God doesn't want to judge, and that just seems so mean. Why would he do that? The problem is, is that we are looking at this from a human-based perspective. Again, we're becoming our own gods, thinking that we have the right to determine that which is right, that which is good, that which is okay. That is not the case. This is Jesus, the righteous judge, and his judgments are sovereign, good, and right always. They never fail. They never err. They never, never, uh, there, there is no weakness in them. So when Jesus says, I will deal with that false teacher, he means he will deal with that false teacher they will be dealt with we want them dealt with guys because they are spreading a false harmful evil 
gospel. If what you are is a person in Christ, then what you long for is the coming of Christ's kingdom, the establishment of his way, the establishment of his kingdom. You know that this way is good because everything in human, the human world that is truly reprehensible has been marred by it. Has anyone you know died of cancer? Has anyone you've known gotten sick? Has anyone you've known lost a child? Has anyone you've known lost a spouse? Has divorce racked any homes you know? Has brokenness racked any homes you know? It's Father's Day. Have any of you grown up fatherless? If the, any of those things are true, you need to know that those are not the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus comes to judge those things, to declare them wrong, and to set all things right. If you're not disgusted by cancer, if you're not disgusted by brokenness, if you're not disgusted by hurt, if you're not disgusted by fatherlessness, if you're not disgusted by the poor being exploited, if you're not disgusted by those things, then by all means have a Jesus who doesn't judge. But I want a Jesus who's coming to deal with those things because those are not his ways. His judgment is righteous because they're judged within him. He is good, he is right, and anything that is contrary to him will be judged and dealt with. That is the best news you will ever hear. Because a Jesus who comes to save you, apart from judging that which is, is awful in this world, what does he save you to? He has no power to save you to anything. So you need to understand, so this idea in scripture that that god never judges right well we're christians so god doesn't that's that's not true see judgment is a part of scripture the idea of salvation is not that god does not judge the idea of salvation is that god judges harshly he declares you worthy of death he declares you evil and then he punished jesus on your behalf the issue is not that you were not judged you were judged you were found to be unworthy the issue is that you were saved from judgment. But don't get it twisted. Don't think that there's no judgment. God certainly does judge. Jesus certainly does judge. He is judged and he has declared the death sentence for the sin that is opposed to him. The good news is not that he doesn't judge. The good news is that he has judged. He has found you guilty and he has acquitted you on behalf of the work of the living God whose name is Jesus. Judgment is real. Jesus took the punishment of the judgment. And so when we lose judgment, we lose that idea. We lose the joy of our salvation. We lose the, the reality. See, if, if your salvation, if you're just standing here because G God just capriciously said, well, I, I guess I just won't hold it against them. That's a permissive parent, right? Have you ever meet the, meet the, the children of permissive parents like 20 years later? <laughs> and it's never working out. I mean, they're but for the grace of God. Occasionally you find it. But typically, you got that real permissive parent. My child never does anything wrong. It's okay. They make excuses, right? My wife watches way too much, much Dateline. Uh, and occasionally uh, on Dateline, you'll see these stories of people who have things called affluenza, right? Affluenza is apparently this, this mental disability where they are raised so rich and with so much and their parents paid attention so little that they had to go out and kill people, right? Which, okay. Uh, so my wife watches about affluenza people. See, a God who grants you salvation on the basis of, well, you did it, but I'm not going to punish you for it, you would end up with affluenza Christians, right? We would go out and make more of a mess. That is not how your salvation happened. Your salvation didn't happen because God decided not to hold it against you. Your salvation happens because God decided to lay the punishment of the judgment against you on Jesus and therefore acquitted you on the basis of the price being paid. The issue is that you were guilty and that the, the price for your guilt has been paid. Therefore, you've been acquitted. Your sins are not held against you. That's how you're innocence comes about but there's judgment even in that we are just extremely lucky that Jesus, that god poured out his judgment on the son 
and not on us. So to continue then with that idea, it says this, the repent. You want repenting. He's talking to the church here in this. We want churches that are repenting of, of teaching false gospels. And when he says this, they continue to commit adultery. In other words, they continue to worship false gods. He calls them to worship him, they worship false gods. He calls them to worship him, they worship themselves. He calls them, them into relationship with him, and they continue to get into a relationship with their success, their money, their compromise. They continue to do ceremonial uh, sacrifices to false gods so that they can get into trade guilds because they need to make money. And, and God says, if you continue to do that, I'm going to throw you on a sickbed, and I'm going to judge you. You're going to get you're going to get judged uh, unless they repent of their works. And then he says, and I will strike her children dead. It doesn't sound pleasant, but here's the reality. What this means in context is that Jesus cares deeply for the purity of his church and he's not willing to let any of those he loves be led astray. And if there's people who are willingly attempting to lead them astray, he's going to deal with them. So here would be the, the analogy I would use is that if there were, there were predators uh, in, in that, that, that came around, people who would try to go after our, our children and would continue to try and go after them, we would not tolerate them and go, well... No big deal. We'll just sort of, we'll make a few changes and we'll keep a slight eye on them. If a person was attempt, repeatedly attempting to hurt our children, repeatedly attempting to go into our nursery and children's area, repeatedly going in and trying to take children out, we would deal with them. We would deal with them harshly. I want to suggest to you that if we caught a man carrying one of our children out, we would by any means necessary go after that man and retrieve our children, right? If he fought, we would fight back. If he pulled a gun, we would continue on. But we would do whatever it takes, even up to the death of that man, to the protection of our, of our children, right? And that might not sound very pacifist, but that's what I'm going to suggest to you. I will tell you that right now. Anyone who went after my children, my own death or his, I would get my child back. And I'll tell you this, if they went after your children at my own death or his, I would get your child back. And that is a human reaction. How much more would the God, when he watches predators come into his congregation and attempt to kidnap and carry them away, the word is lead them astray. In other words, carry them off into something that's a false religion that is every bit as damaging as what happens in a child kingdom. Why would we expect the God of the universe to allow that kidnapper to take us? The God of the universe is going to go after them and he will do whatever it takes to bring them back. In other words, God will not tolerate if you are his, you being led astray by false faith. He is going to go after the teachers of that false faith and he's going to go after you until you repent and come back because he wants you back. He wants the glory for, of you being his child says, I will strike her and all her children dead. See, he's the God of the universe. We, we, we don't and shouldn't relate to, to the ability to say, I strike that person dead. We shouldn't, we shouldn't relate to that. We're not God. He is righteous and good, and he knows what it takes to protect his children, and he, and he will do it. And so he gets that right. And, so, and all the churches know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. I will give each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who has not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, the deep things of Satan, uh, also alternatively in that society called the deep things of God, were religious rituals that they practiced in false, false temples. Uh, but to the rest of you who have not learned the so-called deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron, a rod of iron. And when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, uh, 
As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. Here's the point. Jesus has already received authority from the Father to rule. He has already received authority from the Father to be the king over a kingdom. If you are a kingdom people, you are called to walk with him to the end. At the end, we will rule over the kingdom with him. Although Revelation will tell us later, we'll receive the crown to, to, to rule, but when he comes, we'll throw the crowns down at his feet, saying, unworthy, he's the ruler. But we will be given the authority to rule with him as he rules. And then he says this, And I will give him the morning star. The morning star is a reference to himself. Revelation is fun because it seems coded, but elsewhere, you look up a morning star, means it's a reference to himself. He says, he who overcomes, he who is not led astray by that Jezebel, he who does not prostitute himself with that which is not his, his spouse, he who does not want a friend, I will give him the morning star. Here's the point. Jesus is not concerned about your Lambo, and he's not concerned about your white picket fence. Does not care. But he is going to give you something that has more worth than anything ever. I've always thought this was interesting in debates about end times and how much property Israel gets and how much property everybody else gets in the, in the future and trying to divide everything up. And if you don't know that debate, I've just always found it interesting when people argue over material blessings from, from Scripture and miss this. What does it matter? The ultimate gift is right there. You are given the morning star. The morning star is Jesus himself. And if a man has Jesus, he has all that there is. He has all the authority to rule over the kingdom. It doesn't matter where you draw the lines in Israel to say they're going to get that in the future. They get a new heaven and a new earth and they get Jesus the ruler over it. There is no place in all the universe that is not the domain of the follower of Jesus that the follower of Jesus is in Jesus Christ. If you have Jesus, you have everything. Stupid argument. Let's stop having that one. Here's the point. Jesus did not come to make you successful. He did not come to approve your marketing plan. Jesus did not come to say, just work a little harder. He really wants it. Jesus did not come so that you could get promoted. Jesus didn't come for any of those things. If he blesses you with that, you should thank them. They're gifts from him. But the point of scripture is this. No matter how blessed you get, you could have 50 mil in the bank and six Lambos in your garage and you are no more blessed than the man who has the morning star. In fact, if you have not the morning star, you have nothing no matter what you own. And that's the point of the scripture. He said, why are you continuing to whore yourselves? Why are you continuing to engage with prostitutes? Why are you continuing to walk down that thing? Do you really think membership in a trade guild so you can make a little bit money of money is better than the gift of the morning star? We are the ones who inherit Christ. And in Christ, we inherit the earth. And in inheriting the earth, we become authorities over the kingdom as God has given Christ the authority, so he gives it to us. Frankly, our tiny, small dreams that we continue chasing are awful. I don't know why we do it. We continue to prostitute and sell ourselves into every sort of sexual immorality with every sort of false God every day. And here he is going, here I am the morning star, and you get me. That's the point of the text. And I think it applies to us. No matter where you are, you're chasing something that isn't Jesus. Somewhere, sometime, man, maybe you're just spiritually developed, and I'm wrong, but somehow I doubt it. You're chasing something that's not Jesus. And you're expecting that thing to, to satisfy you. And it never does, because once you get that thing that's not Jesus, you discover that 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 you were made 
for Christ. And so even though, even though the image of God is broken in you, even though sin is messed up stuff in you, what you discover is humankind was created for the glory of God. And the only way humankind can get back to being the glory of God is by following the person who brings us back to God. His name is Jesus. And so you were designed for that. And, and so every time you chase some false God, every time you accomplish it, have you ever done that? Works for ages and ages and ages and ages and ages to get something or to have something or to achieve something. And the moment that you do it, you realize it doesn't satisfy. Right? This is me with, with Christmas because I realized this about myself a while ago is that that because of my personality, I could ask for a Christmas gift. I could get exactly what I requested, and I would still be disappointed in, in that gift. And I had to ask myself, what's up with that? Why am I like that? Here's why. Because I'm an idolater at heart. And because I convinced myself that a gift wrapped in, uh, a, a gift wrapped in paper could satisfy. But they don't satisfy. I don't have a lot of money but I know that sometimes I convince myself if I had just a little bit more, I'd be just a little bit happier. And then I get a little bit more, and I spend a little bit more. Typically, then I eat a little bit more. And then I discover I'm a little fatter, but I'm no happier. Like, it's temporary, you know? And I live in a house, and, and, and I love my house, I, and I live in a neighbor, and I love everything about it. But there's sometimes I convince myself, what if I had a bigger house? What if I had a better house? What if I had something different, right? People do this with cars. If I had a different car, if I had a better car, if I had a more amazing car, if I had a car with those rooms, if I had a car with those rooms, if I had a truck like that person had, if I had, had a boat like that, that person had, if I had a girl like that person has, if I had a man like that girl has, if I had this, if I had that. And we do this, and what I've discovered about me is that if I get any one of those things, they never satisfy. Why? Because you can't fill a cavity that is designed for the living God, for the morning star, with junk and expect it to satisfy. It doesn't work. That's the problem with Rattia. They went running around expecting happiness with false gods. They slept around. That's what it says. You slept around with all of these gods. And they went from God to God to God to God to God, sleeping around expecting ultimate satisfaction. And Jesus says, you'll never find it because you were designed for this kind of marriage. The Son of God and the church married at one at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which happens in chapter 19 and later. So we're jumping up. But he said, you were designed for this. Of course you're not happy. You married the wrong person. You married the right, and so we jump and jump and jump and jump, and we're unfaithful and we're unfaithful, and at no point are we ever satisfied, and no point are we ever happy. Why? Because we were designed to receive the morning star as our joy, as our peace, as our success, as our wealth, and as our happiness, and nothing short of the morning star will ever satisfy. You can chase, you can run, you can work, and you will waste your life on junk. Only the morning star satisfies. And the news of the whole passage is this, is that the living God of Scripture with eyes like fire and feet like bronze sees your acts. And he doesn't seem above plunging you in to something to remind you that he's all you need. Which you might go, well, that seems really scary. To which I would reply, I think that's why Jesus said it. You need to understand, you were made for the morning star, and a loving God is not going to allow you to settle for anything less. 
I sometimes tell people, so do premarital counseling sometimes, and occasionally sitting before me, I'll have a couple that's completely codependent, and you're like, guys, you're, you're making idols out of the other, and, um, and invariably it won't be working well, and I'll be like, yeah, it's not working well because you're his idol and she's your idol and you follow Jesus and Jesus isn't going to share you. He's not interested. So the worst news of idolatry is that God is in the business of smashing idols. So you might want to think also about what your idol is. Right? Is your idol your children? I struggle with that sometimes. I really do. I struggle with making my children an idol. But if I truly love my children, will I make them an idol? Because the reality is God's in the business of removing idols. Is my idol my wife? So you're made to love your wife with all you have and all you are, but Jesus must come first. And if your wife is elevated above Jesus and you expect your marriage to work out, I have bad news, man. You can't engage in idolatry and expect the living God to stand by. He loves you too much. He knows too well that he's the only thing that can fulfill. So even good things can be idols. But if you know him, if you know Jesus, he's going to deal with you to draw you back. Seems like judgment always seems like bad news, but in the end result, if you receive the morning star, it becomes the best news you've ever had. Be people who give up chasing worthless idols. Be people who give up chasing affairs and running around and being unfaithful with everything. Be people who come home to faithfulness to the living God of Scripture. This is Jesus. His eyes are like fire. His feet are like bronze. The good news is it says this, that soon he's coming on a white horse to make war against all that is evil. And then after that, uh, it says Revelation 19 says he comes with a, on, a, on a white horse with a tattooed on his leg, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then a little later it says this, that there's going to be a marriage supper and we, the church, will be married to the Lamb in the consummation of this long engagement we now sit in. It's our big day and that we in white will be presented to Christ as pure, holy, and blameless. And then Revelation ends with these words, even so, Lord, come quickly. This is a good news passage even when it seems like bad news, right? bad news is you're an idolater as an idolater scripture is scripture is we're, we're so um, we're really conservative in American culture how we talk about things right but scripture straight up saying if you're following anything else it's like you're a whore you're a whore that's what it's saying and, and we don't like to hear those words that's, un, that's uncomfortable I think it's probably meant to be but the good news is in all the scripture is that Jesus came to call it, right? What's Jesus' ministry? Oh, there's Jesus with the woman of ill repute. There's Jesus with the woman of the well. She's had five husbands and the dude she's living with, not her husband now. Where's God with Hosea and Gomer? God's Hosea bringing home the unfaithful prostitute wife. See, God calls us even in all of that. But here's what I want you to hear. If we leave behind our life of running around in our sexual immorality with every sort of false god. We get to come home to Jesus and we get to overcome and we get the morning star and that is the greatest news ever. Pray with me.